0: Well, over these next two or three Sundays, um, I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey to just refresh or, or give you a little more clarity and our hoped-for direction for us as a, a congregation in the year that is ahead. It's typically something that we might do in January. And all of you, I hope in some way, have seen the emails or the Facebook posts about uh, these staff vacancies, these new roles that we've created that really align with the vision and strategic direction that we are going in. And they focus really in two main directions. And this week I'm going to focus on one of them, uh, missional discipleship, and what that looks like and means for us. This shouldn't be anything new to you. We, we did quite a bit of it last uh, autumn, during the autumn and then next week, we're going to think a little more about what we mean when we talk about the city hub. And so we're, we're thinking about the vision that we're c- committing to and the strategy that we're already planning for in some of these new posts. And both of the posts that we are recruiting for are really what I would call mobilizing posts. In other words, the, the role of those who are on staff is... It is not to gather ministry to themselves, but to release ministry into the whole people of God. It's a mobilising ministry. That's the biblical model of the people of God. It's not a professionalised ministry where we pay people to do it. It sounds like I'm doing myself out of a job here, but rather it is the responsibility of those that we ask to fulfil those roles to release the people of God in the various forms of mission and ministry. And so we're really thinking about, and I hope our slides are up and ready to go, that what we're doing in this phase just now is prioritizing and organizing for us to better follow Jesus. That's really what we want to become, a church that knows what it means to be following Jesus and to be living that out individually and collectively in the city and beyond in all the ways that we can. And there's two main ways in which we are going to be focusing that on the year ahead. But it's understanding that while we love to worship together, and we do, our aim is to release the whole people of God in the whole mission of God, with the whole power of God, for the sake of Christ, the glory of Christ, and in the power of his Spirit. And so that's what we want to do, release the whole people of God into the whole mission of God, in the whole power of God, for the glory of Christ, and in the power of the Spirit. So let's uh, read some scriptures from John chapter 21, verses 1 uh, to 14. And this story is going to help frame uh, some of what I want to say about this first piece, about what it means to be followers of Jesus, disciples who understand the mission of God and how we can do that. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. So this is after Jesus' death and resurrection and he comes to appear to his disciples again. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them and they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Jesus called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. When the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. Don't you love the detail that they sometimes go into The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 Well, I don't know what your favorite uh, Christmas present was for last year uh, over Christmas. But in our family, at least on Carolyn's side of the family, uh, we kind of do a secret Santa. And there's a theme every year of what the secret Santa uh, should be on. And this year, because Carolyn's maiden name is Wood, they decided that Wood would be the theme for all of our secret Santa gifts And this has quickly become the family favorite gift uh, for this last year. It is, uh, as you can see, a wooden spoon. But on this wooden spoon, there is an inscription on the back which says, What would Jesus stew? Well, apparently, according to this story, what Jesus would stew is some fish. Uh, mixed with some bread that wherever he had taken it from was now to be eaten with the stew. What would Jesus stew? Now, of course, we're familiar with that phrase and those little uh, letters, W-W-J-D, what would Jesus do? But I want to keep faith with the what would Jesus stew metaphor for a little bit through this story of Jesus preparing and welcoming and gathering again his disciples. There's something about what Jesus does here that he's been doing all the way through the Gospels that express what I would call the gathering God. The gathering God. Now I'm hoping that's going to appear up here any minute now. Any minute now. Well, they get that sorted out. I'll talk about the gathering God. You'll notice it throughout the Old Testament. God is always gathering his people to himself and to one another. God's gathering brings his people together as his family. Gathering is at the very heart of who God is and what he does. And all the way through the Old Testament, uh, the belonging and identity of the people of God was captured in their gathering. God is a gathering God. And for us, as the people of God, God is still gathering us together. Not just to him, but to each other. Now, Jesus did this all the way through his ministry. So if we were to ask what would Jesus do, and if we were to look at the Gospels... As you go through from the beginning of all of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to the end, you'll find that what Jesus is doing is gathering. From the very beginning, we see him gathering his disciples. And as he gathers his disciples from the very beginning of his ministry, he calls an interesting bunch to follow with him. And actually, it's quite a small group, 12 in this discipleship group. Now, if you've been hanging around our church long enough, you'll know that a priority for us as a congregation is what we call life groups. It's creating places and spaces where people come together regularly in much smaller groups. We're far too big to do discipleship well in just one big group. We need to have those smaller pockets of groups of people who are learning to follow Jesus together. And Jesus does that. He gathers 12 who he begins to sow into, invest in, walk with, do life with, model how he live as a follower of Jesus, as a child of God. And he gathers them and calls them. And then through his ministry, he walks with them, lives with them, serves with them, prays with them, cares for them. And he does that right to the end, this group of 12 for these three years that he's with them. And then he releases them and he begins to send them to do the kind of things that he has done. He gathers this small group of people. That's what Jesus did. That's why we think that those small groups of people, those life groups are so important. Why? Because they help us become better followers of Jesus. That's where we really learn, together with each other, the following Jesus that he calls us to. And that's what Jesus does as the gathering God. And if you look at the makeup of the disciples, they are a a, a very diverse group. You know, there's always a tendency in the church that what we do is when we get into little uh, small groups or life groups, that we do that just with people who are like us. The danger of that is, is that we just reaffirm each other's biases, prejudices, and we we then reaffirm each other's blind spots as well because there's no other voices apart from voices like ours to speak or to hear. Jesus gathers together quite a bizarre range of people. There's Peter, outspoken, fiery, needs to think more before he speaks. Have you ever met anyone like that? If you haven't, it's probably you. James and John, sons of Zebedee, sons of of thunder, Jesus calls them. They seem to be ambitious, argumentative. You remember Mark chapter 10? They're arguing about who's going to sit at Jesus' right or Jesus' left when they finally get to their place in the kingdom, in his kingdom. Then there's Judas. Did they always have their doubts about where Judas' loyalty really lay? Were there question marks? Or what about Thomas? Thomas with all these doubts. Man, he's bringing down the tone again. The atmosphere was great until Thomas arrived. Then he started asking all these questions and and doubting whether any of this was real. What a life group to be in. And then there was Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, alongside Simon the Zealot, a Jewish nationalist. I mean, you can't get much more extreme than that. You you got... um, Simon the Zealot, who's passionate about nationalizing uh, the whole of, of, of the Jewish people into their own independent state. And he's got to sit alongside Matthew, the Roman tax collector, who of course has uh, oppressed and persecuted the very people that Simon the Zealot wants to liberate. I mean, you'd almost feel as if it had a sound of uh, some of the things that we face nowadays in our own um, Scotland with all the political discussion that's on. But here they are all in this life group that Jesus is bringing together. What a bunch. Imagine this was your life group. But Jesus gathers them. And there's something in the differentness of one another that is important for discipleship. At the very least, it'll challenge your level of grace when you're involved with people who don't always see or say Things the way you see and see. But from the very beginning and all the way through, he gathers this group together, the gathering God and all their differentness, and he walks with them and he loves them and he shows them what it is to be his follower. And in this meal that he serves, he's gathering them again after all the turmoil of his death and all of their desertion. All the promises they made that, with Jesus, we, we will be with you right to the end. And then when it came to the bit, they were nowhere to be seen. Just the women who stayed the distance. The rest of them had scattered. So what will Jesus do in this moment as he brings these disciples back together? And what does he do? He shares food. He cooks for them. He has a meal with them. And in New Testament times, food and hospitality is an expression of shared love and shared life. He's bringing them back together again. It's an expression of a deep relationship and a deepening relationship with others. It's a sign of welcome. It's a sign of unity. And in this case, it's a sign of peace and reconciliation and forgiveness. Jesus is still gathering these disciples to himself, this little life group, so that they can learn what it means when we talk about following Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. And the reason we have such focus on encouraging people into life groups is because this is where we really begin to learn. We dig deeper in what it means to be following Jesus. And we learn with other people, and we help them learn, and they help us learn. There's a mutuality about it as Jesus leads us. And it's not always easy, because not everybody agrees, and not everyone's the same way and has the same views. But what unites us is Christ and our decision to follow Him, and we grow stronger together. And so, Jesus' whole ministry in this life group of 12 is gathering, teaching, encouraging, challenging, modeling, equipping, sending this life group. And then he invites them to report back, reflect, rejoice, learn about all that they have done. There's an accountability about it all. As they keep going together, this little band, this life group, as they grow in what it means to be following Jesus. What would Jesus stew? Not just fish on a beach, but he had been stewing together this mix of disciples' ingredients, all their diversity, into a group of people who knew what it meant to be following Jesus. That's what Jesus stewed together in this three years he committed with these 12 followers that's what Jesus would do. And the reason we focus on this is because discipleship is a communal activity. We're not supposed to do discipleship on our own. Discipleship is meant to happen alongside and with other people in these little small groups. That's the Jesus model. It's done best. Discipleship is done best. Following Jesus is done best in small community. This is wonderful. I love worshiping with God's people. There's only so much that can happen in this space. It is in those small places. A little bit like the small groups of, if you've ever looked into kind of the structure of, of an army. It looks like a a huge gathering, but actually it's made up of really small sections. Sometimes two to four people in a team, or six to 12 in a squad, or 12 to 24 in a patrol, or 25 to 50 in a platoon. I mean, it looks like a big army, but they're organized into little small groupings that will help them to really live out what it means to be a soldier. And that's the kind of idea of what we mean when we talk about life groups as a church. The growing and the learning and the encouraging and the acting together and the accountability. And life groups are a strategic priority for us. Why? Because they reflect the gathering heart of God. The gathering together. And then the equipping us to know what it means and to live out following Jesus and that's why we're advertising for that role. So if you're wondering why that and not something else, it, it, it's because part of that responsibility and missional discipleship lead will be to help us establish this ministry of those smaller groups so that we can learn better like Jesus and his disciples what it means to be following Jesus. Those little life groups That gathering expresses the gathering heart of God to release us to be better followers of Jesus, his son. Well, that's the first one, the gathering God. Jesus and his disciples, a life group, food and hospitality, that sign of humility. that discipleship is a communal activity, that small community. Well, the second one is... uh, comes from the second part of that story of Jesus with his disciples. It's an encounter that he then goes on to have with Peter. So let's read on in that that story. When the disciples and Jesus had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Hmm. There we go. There we go. I think this reflects the caring God. Now, let's go back to post the time where Jesus was last with his disciples. He just shared a meal with them. He was arrested when they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. In spite of all the pledges that Peter and his disciples had made to stay with him, when Jesus is arrested and taken into the courts, Peter denies that he even knew him. The discipleships abandon him. And as Jesus meets up with his disciples and calls them again, and as he talks to Peter, I wonder what Peter was expecting Jesus to say. And Jesus deals so gently with Peter. In spite of all that had happened, in spite of his denial, in spite of his abandonment of Jesus, Jesus deals gently with Peter. It's the expression of the caring God. Jesus doesn't recall Peter's previous failure, but it's almost as if for each of those three denials that Peter made of Jesus, that every time Jesus asks him, do you love me? He's bringing Peter back three times to what really matters. It's so gentle and so caring. Peter probably was expecting that Jesus would be harsh, maybe even condemning about what he had done. But what does Jesus do? He brings him back to this wonderfully simple, caring, beautiful question Peter, do you love me? And really, friends, that is right at the heart of what Jesus wants to say to us. Do you love me? All the things that we may or may not have got right in the year that's just been passed. As we step into this new year, the caring God comes to us and says, what I want to know is, do you love me? Do you really love me? Do you love me more than anything else? And sometimes I think we give ourselves such a hard time. Perhaps we're even unable to forgive ourselves. Or we replay our failures in our lives. When Jesus just comes to ask us, focus on me. Do you, do you love me? Focus on Jesus and loving him. Do you love me, Jesus said. But he says, Lord, of course I love you. And there's something in that exchange of do you love me and of course I love you where the weight, you get a sense that maybe there's a weight dropping off Peter's shoulders of all the regret that he might have had about what had happened. What Jesus is concerned about is do you still love me? The caring God. Peter may have expected, he may even have felt that he deserved anger disappointment, condemnation. But what he got was the shepherd of his soul. The shepherd of his soul, the caring God. Jesus, the shepherd, the pastor. And then having established that simple question or answer to that question, do you love me, Peter? Of course I love you. Jesus then says, well, Peter, take care of my sheep there's another response that Jesus needs other than just, yes, of course, I love you, Jesus. Jesus says to him, well, now your response, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. And each time in these three moments where Peter is asked, do you love me? And he says he does. Jesus refers him to this wider people. He refers him to the disciples that he's walked with. Those who are following Jesus, feed them. Take care of them. Jesus reminds Peter that this response carries a responsibility. Love for God must necessarily express itself in love for one another. Yes, I love you, said Peter. Jesus says, well, take care of my sheep. Feed my lambs. Love for God, love for Jesus must necessarily express itself in our love for one another. John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's a great witness to the world around us when they look and see the followers of Jesus loving each other. And we know that in the makeup of the disciples, which was so diverse, that couldn't have been easy. We understand that in our own lives, that's not always easy. But the outworking of our love for Jesus is love for one another. And again, we do that well and we do that best. When we're in those smaller groups of people where we can learn what it means to love one another. Love is something that encourages each other. Love is something that cares for each other. We express the caring heart of God when we learn to live and care for one another. Or from 1 John three sixteen and 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Sometimes I'm not even sure if we know what each other need. We don't have enough conversations. We don't have enough time with each other. We don't know each other. There's too many of us around. How can we possibly know 250, 300 people? But somehow in those little groups, as we learn to walk with each other, we hear the cry of one another's hearts and we're able to respond in love, with love, in ways that make a difference in action. And people notice that. And we care for each other. And the model of the New Testament is that the body cares for itself. There's mutual responsibility of pastoral care and prayer for one another. As Jesus is the shepherd, so too Peter now is to become the shepherd. And all those who will be in this group, this following of Jesus, will care for one another. It's the response Of love one another in our lives. There are 59 one another's in the New Testament. I'm not going to read them all, but some of them encourage one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, spur one another on, confess to one another, honor one another, build up one another, pray for one another. There's loads of them. We do them in those little groups with one another. One anothering one another. I think is how Andy Stanley puts it. One anothering one another. And that can't be done sitting in rows and pews like this. That's done in little groups where we get to know one another. And we can fulfill the one another's that are in the scripture. And the church is the place where we express this caring heart of God. The caring God in care and prayer for each other. Relegating pastoral care, and it is a relegation, relegating pastoral care to the professional clergy and staff is unsustainable, unrealistic, unhelpful, and unbiblical. If your expectation is that paid pastors and staff We'll do all the pastoral care, then you've just put something on that is unrealistic, unsustainable, unhelpful, and unbiblical. Because the care of God's people is by God's people. Now again, you maybe think, Ian, you do yourself out a job. There are responsibilities that I have. But when it comes to pastoral care, when it comes for caring for one another, the normative Biblical response is that the body of Christ cares for one another. And if we don't, if the church moves into this professionalized pastoral care, all we do is create a culture of therapeutic consumerism. Come and get my wee bit from the pastor. Oh, God help us. If that's the site or horizon of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. And it's an alien concept to the New Testament and the life of following Jesus. We're meant to care for one another. It's said that disappointment is the gap between expectation and reality. And so where we have an expectation that the professional clergy will do the ministry, whatever that is, and the pastoral care, well, first of all, it's an unrealistic and unbiblical expectation. But if that's your expectation and the reality is very different, it is the whole people of God who are taking care of each other. Then probably you'll find some disappointment. You're expecting this when as the reality needs to be something else. And I know that might be challenging for some of our models of the church. But I don't want us to be a biblical New Testament church that knows what it means to care for one another. And so, here's a little idea of what pastoral care and prayer at Trinity looks like. This is our aspiration. That the normative pattern of pastoral care should be the one another's in life groups. That should be the standard benchmark of how we care, how pastoral care happens for each other. That's the normative. Then I'd love for us to have a, a, a group of lay pastors, our lay pastoral care teams. And, and that's more of a proactive. There are things that have to be planned and organized to make that possible. There are more gifted pastors in this room than ever grace this stage are ever asked to do anything up here. That's some of you. And we'd love to mobilize that group of people who seem to have a a gifting in pastoral care. They may not feel a sense of calling into full-time ministry, but my goodness, they know how to pastor and care for people. And that would allow us to be more proactive in how we do pastoral care. And of course, there is a role for those of us who have a pastoral oversight that we need to respond where there is need in, in in certain ways, in certain areas. But, but it is actually virtually, literally impossible to expect one or two people or however many you expect. But we will have a role, a responsive role. And then sometimes the pastoral care that we need to give needs to be intensive. It has to go beyond the resources of what we have in our hands, particularly where there's crisis or complex needs. Sometimes we need professional and bespoke partner care, others who can help us. Sometimes we need focused prayer ministry into lives as part of our pastoral care. Counseling, GP involvement, health professionals. That's a much wider perspective of pastoral care than the one that has resided within the church. At least in the West for a number of generations. And we need to get back to a people-centered, mutual care for one another. That's the normative, biblical picture. And our life groups and that mutual pastoral care are a strategic priority for us. That's why we're staffing in this direction for missional discipleship role. Because in all of this we're expressing the caring heart of God as well as the gathering heart of God. And to get us to that kind of way of caring for each other we need some new investment. And that's the strategic vision. Well Last bit, I've got the gathering God, the caring God, and finally we're going to have the sending God. Jesus sends his 12 disciples out into the world around to villages and towns. He sends the 72 to do the same. And at Pentecost, he sends 120, so much so that in the power of the Spirit, the 120 are gathered in that other room. Can't help but flow out into the streets. But like the whole movement of God from beginning to end is to send a people to be light into the nations. God has always been sending his people. Now, I'm, not try- I'm trying not to repeat myself, but we did a whole series of this in autumn last year. We reminded ourselves that the, the Bible verse that was chosen for one of the plaques on the, the wall of the foyer was from John twenty twenty one. As the Father has sent me, Jesus says, so I now send you. That's the kind of church that we are, what we're called to be. And the whole story of Scripture is God sending. And in verse 18 in this passage that we read, as Jesus gathers these disciples together, cooks for them, and as he reinstates Peter, as he cares for Peter, as he pastors Peter. In verse 18, we, we read about the fact that for Peter, he's going to be sent in such a way that will eventually lead to his death. He'll be sent into the world in such a way that it will be one of persecution, oppression. It will lead eventually to his death. And the sending of the disciples and Peter into the world will not be easy. In Peter's case, the cost of following Jesus will literally be his life. And when we did that frontline series... We were talking about the fact that God sends us into all kinds of places, our front lines, whether it's our family or our neighborhood, our community, our workplaces, our schools, our universities, our student life, wherever it is, God sends us into these places. And we're followers of Jesus there, as well as when we're gathered like this or in our small groups. And we learn how to live like that with each other, those frontline places. Following Jesus. And in the book of Acts, when we see the apostles being sent out, they are working out. You can see it throughout the book of Acts. How do we follow Jesus in these front lines that we live? You look at Paul as he tries to live what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the public spaces of work, the marketplace, with city leaders and authorities, with neighbors, and even his social life. What does that look like to be following Jesus there? And so when Jesus sends his disciples out, as he sends us into those frontline places, it's like in our ones or twos and threes we gather or, or those life groups we gather and we learn together of what it means to be following Jesus and then we're sent out from there to live as followers of Jesus. Then we come back and we report back, just as the disciples did with Jesus, how are we getting on? How did we get on this week? What were we struggling with? How, how, how did? What, where were there, was our there persecution? Where were the breakthroughs? Where was our celebration? How can we pray for each other? But in that sending out, it, it's almost as if God is sending his army, as if Jesus is sending his army of followers out into the world. We are being sent out just as Peter was being commissioned by Jesus and the other disciples, so to us. We are sent into the world an army. But we're not called to fight the world. That's a mistake we make. Some of us want to be aggressive against the world. Actually, our fight is against the enemy, not the world. There's some battle we need to do in the place of prayer. And if we would take... some of that anger and frustration and aggression out in the place of prayer, rather than against the world, then we might better know how to live in the world that we're sent into as an army. We fight the enemy, Ephesians 6, 1. We do not fight uh, against flesh and blood. We do not battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of this dark world. We're sent out as an army. We're not called to fight the world. We fight the enemy. And we're not called to judge the world. And that's another area that the church can sometimes be uh, problematic in. We, We don't particularly like the way the world is. And so we're very judgmental on how the world works. Now we have to be discerning and we have to know what we believe in. But we have to make sure we don't become judgmental to the world. Jesus reminds us, See, before you start to try and take the speck of dusk out of anyone else's eye, try and remove the plank from your own eye. And I think sometimes we could do with keeping that in check more than being a church that might judge the world. And we're certainly not to condemn the world. Jesus didn't. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's John three sixteen, John three seventeen. For I did not come to the world to condemn the world. Man, if Jesus isn't condemning the world, it's not our position to either. And so, while we're sent into the world as an army, it's not to fight, judge, or condemn, but rather it's to love, serve, bring godly transformation to hold and heal and liberate and remind them of the goodness and love of God, to announce a message of rescue from darkness to light as an army of ordinary people, a kingdom where love is the key, a city, a light to the nations, heirs to the promise are we, a people whose life is in Jesus, a nation together we stand, only through grace are we worthy, inheritors of the land, an army of ordinary people. A gathering God, like Jesus who gathers in small groups of people so that we can really learn what it means to be following Jesus. Our caring God, who cares but then asks us to care for one another, and our sending God, Who sends us as an army from those places where we are following Jesus on our front lines. That's where we're heading, church. That's why we're staffing in this direction. It's very deliberate. It's very intentional because we believe it's the New Testament biblical model of what it means to be God's people for this generation. And all of these are strategic priorities for us. And we don't want to just employ someone to come and do it for us. This is for all of us to be in. So that we may become those who truly are following Jesus. Being sent as the church is a privilege as well as a responsibility. But we are following Jesus. And we want to be strong. And we want to be the people God needs us to be. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And as I finish, I want to read one of the great passages of Scripture. It's a a prophetic picture of the church. And I want to say to us that the church is a great priority in the mission of God in the world. We should not be ashamed to be the church of Jesus Christ. God has called us to be his church in our following of Jesus. And this is a prophetic picture. We're not to be arrogant, but we're not to be ashamed. But rising up together in Christ and in the Spirit, we will begin to fulfill this prophetic picture. So I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able. And in our following of Jesus that we would become this kind of church. The hand of the Lord was upon me, says Ezekiel. And he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and he set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. Bones that were very dry. Very dry. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy, speak to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. And I will put my breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise and a rattling sound and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. And there was no no breath in them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. And they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast and mighty army in their units and platoons and groups as they rose together and connected together a mighty army. And so, Lord, we speak breath of life. Come upon your church, we pray. We want to position ourselves well in following you, Lord Jesus, together with one another. But we can do none of it without the breath of life the breath of Holy Spirit. Church, arise, rise up in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. We give up all that was to follow him. And in following him, we do not look back, but we give all for following him into this new future. Breath of life, breathe upon your church and let us arise together. Teach us, Lord, Train us, equip us, empower us, release us in the word and in the spirit and with each other. May we learn what it means to gather. May we learn what it means to care. May we learn what it is to be sent. And may we do it with one another and in the power of Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ. So church arise and put your armor on in Jesus name.